Hi, and welcome back to the Technology Policy Institute's podcast, To Think Minimum. It's Wednesday, March 11th, 2020, and I'm Scott Walston, TPI President and Senior Fellow. I'm joined by Blair Levin, who is currently a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution and a policy advisor at New Street. Blair has worked for the past 25 years at a high level at the intersection of broadband policy and capital markets. And most importantly, for the purpose of this conversation, he led the FCC's national broadband plan back in 2009 to 2010. I was the economics director for the plan, which meant that Blair was my boss. Blair, great to have you. (laughs) Scott, great to talk to you again. (laughs) Um, So we're recording this podcast over Zoom as the world moves towards virtual interactions in response to the coronavirus, but uh, you weren't actually able to get on other than through the phone network, which maybe should be something we could talk about later. Sure. But before we get to that, uh, in broad strokes, what did you think the broadband plan got right? It got a bunch of things right. There were a few things that got wrong that I'll be happy to talk about as well. The first thing I would say, and this is not just a tribute to you, but it is a tribute to you, we got the hiring right. We hired a really terrific team of 70 people. They were very diverse in their views. I think that they all had a commitment to trying to understand the facts before trying to answer questions, which I think was a really important thing. I think they were all incredibly hardworking. And so if, as I think about the question, what advice would you give someone doing another version of it? The first thing is, you know, hire well. And you were terrific, and there were a lot of other terrific people on there. The second thing we got right was process. We were supposedly given a year. The truth is we were given about six months to do the project, but we really accelerated it by both being very public about what we were, the questions we were trying to answer, very public about what we thought the facts were and allowing people to change our minds if they could bring in better facts, very public about what questions we were trying to answer. And then eventually we got to very public about what options we were considering. So, you know, pretty much every FCC meeting had a presentation from the team that was really designed to allow the public to make our end product better. The third thing we got right was the questions that we were asking, which really were, you know, fundamentally, how do you get networks everywhere, the access problem? How do you get everybody on the adoption problem? And how do you utilize that platform to improve the delivery of public goods like healthcare, education, job training, job placement, public safety, public health? I would say we actually missed a couple of questions, but if I could do it again, I'd do it. One was, how do we make sure we have the right information? We got a lot of great information, but we didn't create an ongoing process for the FCC to get the right information. Part of that was just the problem of the way we were funded. In an ideal world, what you would do is you would first map the situation, then you would develop a plan based on that map, based in part on that map, and then you would fund a bunch of projects. Because of the way the Recovery Act worked, we first funded a bunch of projects, then we did the plan, then we did the map. Right, the map was the last You can thing. argue about that, but that's just the way it worked. But it turned out that the map was deficient, and the FCC as an institution is deficient in gathering information. I would just say, in projects I've done since then for California, for refugees on behalf of the World Bank and UNHCR, I have atoned for my sins by always saying the first thing is to have government be a respected, trusted, important source of information for all stakeholders. It's absolutely essential. Something else that we didn't get right was understanding, and it's related. We were proposing a lot of things for which there wasn't a natural institution and government to own it. Mm -hmm. And I think anyone doing a plan should understand things don't happen because they're a good idea. They happen because there's an institution that is fundamentally graded on whether they implement that good idea. And that would be another thing that I would say that any new plan 
should do, and, and by the way, any government initiative. But by that, you I don't think you mean proposing new institutions for those, but focusing on things where there is a mechanism to get them done. Yeah, though I think in the case of data platform regulation, there may well need to be a new institution, and that's something which is very different than 10 years ago. You know, reasonable minds can differ about that. There's actually a very healthy debate about that. Mm -hmm. But I would not take creating new institutions off the table. Mm -hmm. It is much better to, shall we say, enlarge the capability of an existing institution because setting up a new institution does take a lot of time and effort. Then there's a whole series of policies, which I think we largely got right. Well, actually, before you you go on to that, though, let me follow up on one of the things you said, what we got, what the plan did wrong. You said we want to make sure I have the right information when you start, which seems like good advice for most things in life. But Advice that many in the current government don't take seriously um, is part of the problem (laughs) we have with the coronavirus today. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. I'm not sure they really understand what information is. Right. So, uh, but it's often hard to know even how to define that information and who should get it. I mean, the FCC still has a lot of those problems, and it's not because they're stupid or they don't know what they're doing. It's just it's it's hard to change things. And we argue a lot over what exactly should be collected and who should collect it. That's right. That's right. And so look, the, the industry doesn't really want to give the government that information. And there are legitimate reasons for the industry not to. A, it's time consuming. B, it's expensive. Or I should say there's an expense to it. It's not really that expensive. But C, you know, some of the information has competitive value, which they don't want other people to get. On the other hand, the government has legitimate public reasons for wanting to get that information. So threading that needle is always going to be a problem. But that's the challenge, right? I mean, that's the work. Well, I've, I've often thought that much of the FCC's data gathering capabilities should go somewhere else, like BEA or BLS. And we can do some things through surveys that they try to do now through counts. And you know, the people who really know about data in the government are those folks at BEA and BLS, and we don't really engage them much at all in this area. No, I, I think that's a great analogy, and we should have done kind of an initiative on how do we turn the FCC into what is the equivalent of the BLS for statistics about communications. Mm, yeah. I think it's vitally important for the country. The economy, which before the coronavirus was increasingly a function of what happens over the network, and now is going to be even more so, it's critical to have that kind of data to understand what's going on in the economy. We don't, and that's a loss. So I I interrupted you. You were going to talk about the specific policies. Well, I think there there are a couple of things that I think clearly were successful. I, I would say the most successful piece was in the category of spectrum. There have been about 35 national broadband plans done before we did ours. Almost all of them focused solely on the question of how do we get wireline networks into the rural areas of our country. We focused on that, or I should say we did a big initiative on that, but we focused on other things as well. One of them, the spectrum, which I think is now it's obvious that it's really important. Probably the single most important initiative that came out of the plan was the broadcast incentive auction. Not only did it you know, <laughs> more than pay for the plan many, many, many times over in terms of government revenues, more importantly, it freed up a very significant amount of spectrum. But I want to emphasize that the plan, you know, policy is a football game. You're on a team. Nobody wins a play or a game with a single thing that only they do. Congress had to pass a law. It did. You know, people before us had to propose the idea which they did. It was lying around and no one was taking it seriously until we really started to 
emphasize it, but I think the incentive auction was a tremendous success in terms of freeing up spectrum in a very market-oriented way, very efficiently. Some people were disappointed by the amount of money it raised, forgetting that there was an auction previously that raised a ton of money. The broadcaster had been smart, by the way. They wouldn't have opposed us, which delayed it, which meant the incentive auction would have gone first, but that's their problem. But the bigger point is we really gathered a lot of the early Obama team together to talk about Spectrum in a way that actually freed up a lot of Spectrum, raised a lot of money, very important for the rollout of 4G, and now I think some of that spectrum is, you know, the incentive auction is the spectrum that T-Mobile is relying on for its 5G initiative, as well as, of course, what, they, what they're getting from the Sprint deal. It's but, kind of amazing. Um, when I went back to when I was looking over the, the, plan, the plan again this morning, when we started, there were 50 megahertz in the pipeline. And, you know, if we today, you know, we're sort of at that stage, we we're just talking about only 50 megahertz additional. It's sort of almost inconceivable because now, you know, it's, we're, we're, we've gotten used to having large amounts of spectrum coming out. And that was not true before the plan, at least not regularly true. Right. That's right. And look, again, I don't mind beating up on the Trump administration, but that's not my purpose for saying what I'm about to say. No one should be surprised by that. But we had a pretty coordinated effort. And, you know, between the FCC and NTIA, there was a lot of good work on Spectrum. And you don't have the kind of battles that even the Republican members of Congress are just appalled by in terms of the battles between NTIA and the FCC over Spectrum issues. And part of that was because we actually spent six to nine months working with pretty much everyone in the government talking about what are the Spectrum needs for the next 10 years. We had this attitude that, you know, we'd like to actually solve the problems before anybody even knows there's a problem, you know, fix the pothole before anyone drives over it. And that's what we did with Spectrum. And I think that that worked really well. I think also the transition from universal service, from supporting voice to supporting broadband, I might be critical of certain details of how the FCC did it. But fundamentally, in the broad sweep, we have almost seamlessly transitioned from subsidizing one use to subsidizing another. And that was, that was important. You know, two of the most successful things in the plan actually aren't in the plan, but they came out of the plan. And I think they're really important because it tells you that it's the planning process and the ideas it generates and the conversations it generates. That's what's important. So one of the things that and you'll remember this, we couldn't figure out how to drive another upgrade cycle. We hired our friends at Columbia to do a study of all the publicly available information about new deployments. And we realized that for the first time since the beginning of the commercial internet, there was no plan for a national provider to build a better network than the current existing network. The upgrades had stopped. And it was really because Wall Street had said to Fios, had said to Verizon, this Fios investment's not going to pay off. And therefore, AT&T and CenturyLink weren't going to do it. And therefore, the cable guys weren't, they weren't going to overbuild their own network or improve it. And there were no third parties at that time. And that was a problem because we could see in Asia already, Korea, Japan, others building fiber to get gigabit networks. Make a long story short, this led to conversations that led to Google Fiber, led to other initiatives, including one that I did called Gig.U. And that really accelerated the upgrade. You know, we would have gotten there eventually, but it's great that we got there faster. Google Fiber was not a business success. But from a policy perspective, it really drove an upgrade cycle. So that when we were doing the plan, the average speed, download speed was 4.1 megs. Now it's, I think, 96.25 or something like that. That's an incredible increase. And as we're going to see as people do remote work and remote learning and all kinds and a lot of streaming, Having that extra speed is really important. 
So that kind of came out of the plan. Would that have happened otherwise? I don't know, but it, uh, it was certainly helpful. The other one was Comcast Internet Essentials. Mm-hmm. David Cohen, the general counsel, was at a talk to John Horrigan, who you and I worked with, uh, Gabe, about problems of adoption. And David's reaction was, you know, our company really ought to deal with this and created the program. Eight million Americans are now online who otherwise wouldn't be online. That's an important number. And those are people whose kids are now, you know, going to be attending class online or otherwise they wouldn't be able to, could do their homework online. So I would say those are two things that were successful as well. There are, you know, there were 200 recommendations. There were others I could point to, but those are kind of, I think, big picture. Right. Um, I would when you talk about you know, how, I don't remember whether you used this word or not, but the, but surprising to see such a large share of the networks offering such high speeds. How do you see the broadband ecosystem now relative to what you expected in 2010? So, you know, in 2010, what did you hope things would look like in 2020? And then I guess a related question is, given all the things that changed along the way, how do you feel about where we are now? Yeah, I have a view which is not very popular in Washington, D.C., <laughs> but, you know, part of that is because I look at the world. I do a lot of Wall Street advising. Mm-hmm. Wall Street forces you to be much more fact-oriented. They are not into D.C. spin. Wall Street has its problems and its its blind spots. But if I were to go say to them things the way that people in D.C. speak, I wouldn't have a job because the things have to be database. They can't be ideological. They can't reflect the world that you want to be true. So, you know, a couple of things that I would say. Number one, as to the first digital divide, this is the one that everybody wants to talk about. We need to get more broadband to rural areas. I agree with that. I think we've done a lot of that. But more important, as I look at certain technology trends, I feel real confident that in a few years, we're going to get to where we need to be. And so while it takes up 95% of the political capital, there's very little discussion about the implications of what's going to happen in satellites and what is happening with 5G. It's not really 5G. It's really fixed wireless and some mobile wireless, but it's higher capacity wireless. What's going to happen with the Microsoft Airband Initiative? What's going to happen with rural co-ops? I see a number of things that over the next three to five years, I think we'll get close. You never really solve the problem 100%, but you just are trying to, you know, get from 80% to 95% to 98%. But about 95% of the political capital spent on broadband in terms of the digital divide is about the rural problem, which again, it exists, but there are a lot of things in the work. And I would just say, you know, as we look at the way universal service is being done, we're not changing it in light of what T-Mobile's commitments were vis-a-vis their deal. And we're not changing it in light of what the satellite guys can do. By that, I mean the new satellite guys, not the ones who recently won in the auction. But I think we're going to find that those things are helpful in closing that gap. The second gap, which I, I think we should be devoting a lot more resources to, is adoption. But it's very complicated. There's a lot of dispute, very legitimate dispute, and very hard to really discern what's going on, vis-a-vis whether the real challenge is the affordability relevance or digital literacy. It's certainly a combination of all three. Don't want to debate that here unless you want to debate it. But the big point I would make is we have to devote more to that. But as I sit here today and I think about where I think the greatest failing was in the last 10 years and where what is the most important digital divide over the next 10 years, it's a digital divide no one is talking about. And that is the digital divide between what we should be doing on the network and what we're actually doing on the network in terms of improving how we deliver public goods. Again, healthcare, education, job training. That's going to be a difficult divide to define, though, because at least part of it, I mean, once you talk about 
the way something should be, you're immediately going to be in all kinds of, well, ideological debates, although maybe not exactly, you know, left versus right ideology, but it sounds like it's, I mean, it's a hard thing to define. I, I don't know where we, where we uh, should absolutely, be. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean it's not, you know, what I want to try to do in talking about the plan is not so much talk about what we did, but talk about where we should be going, kind of draw a map going forward. And it just seems to me that, you know, the Wall Street Journal had a really interesting article last fall saying that Americans are buying too much bandwidth and pointing out that really, in terms of how people use it, 25 is fine, 50 is fine. Why are all these people buying a gig or buying 500 or 200? They, they never use it. And to me, this is kind of amusing. Lots of reasons it's amusing. But the Wall Street Journal, I think, is factually correct, but I think they miss a number of important points. To me, the most important one is, for the first time, bandwidth is not the constraint on economic growth and social progress. And that's critical. If we're talking about a world in which there's four megabits of download, bandwidth is an enormous constraint. There's lots of stuff you can't do that we know today we would like to be doing. Now we're at a situation, which is where we want to be, whereas for a critical mass of Americans you know, they have enough bandwidth. The question is, can we figure out how to better deliver those public goods and services using that platform instead of using uh, different means? Let me offer an example of where I think we fall short that is quite timely, but we could use lots of examples. Where on the internet today can you go, simply put in your zip code, and you immediately find out what is the status of the spread of the coronavirus near your zip code, in and near your zip code. Um, probably Where somewhere in Korea you can do that. Absolutely. You can't do it in the United States, or at least I haven't been able to find it, and you know, I've been trying. You can get a great map on Hopkins of where the virus is internationally, but the thing that most people who start coughing want to know is, is it around my neighborhood? And then second, where do I get tested? And third, where do I get treated? If you just had a website that did those three things, that would be a really great thing. And how is it that the federal government doesn't have that website up and running? It's because nobody in the federal government thought of it. Now, there are lots of critical things to be said about the federal government's response. But my point is, who in the government is responsible for making sure that in terms of mitigating the damage, we get people the information they need? If there was ever a time where you would want to have government focused on creating that kind of information it would be now. And yet it doesn't happen. Why? Because we actually don't think of it. Because not a single press person has asked about it. Nobody asked the person testifying today about it. We don't think about it that way. We really haven't, you know, changed the way we operate to think about broadband being first as a way of addressing these problems. So how would that, what's an example of that in a sort of non-crisis area? Although crises are... Well, you know, like one of the ideas we had... Yeah. One of the ideas we had in the plan was we thought the Department of Labor should essentially create a job search engine that did a variety of things. And not only you you put in your zip code and it would tell you, you know, jobs in the area, but more importantly, you would put in information about who you are, what your educational background is, the jobs you've had. It would tell you what jobs you are qualified for today in your neighborhood. It would also tell you kind of what classes you could take given where you're at, that could upgrade your skills, particularly to fit jobs in your area that are available today. Department of Labor has a lot of offices where they give career counseling. But this is the kind of thing where I think if we were starting from scratch, we would do that. Of course, part of the problem is nobody, we're we're not starting from scratch with anything. But there are a variety of different 
ways in which you know government can improve the delivery of these goods and services over the internet. And, and we had some ideas. All of the, I assure you that if we had an idea 10 years ago, there are better ideas out there now. There must be. Yeah. With the digital, going back to the digital divide for a minute, yeah. and we, we know all the problems, the, the ways that rural subsidies have not been effective and reasons why it gets so much more attention than the, than the income-based digital divide. And it'll be interesting to see as more service in rural areas. What happens with related funding is unlikely that it's ever going to go down. But with the income-based digital divide, and like you said, there's a debate over what exactly the reasons are. I've been sorry that we haven't seen more experiments and studies of what works and, and what doesn't. And I would like to, I mean, if, if we were redoing the plan again, I'd like to see some discussion of what are the kinds of things that we just don't know yet, but we could know if we put a little effort into them. Oh, Scott, you're so wonderfully naive. Oh, I know. Um, no, <laughs> it was one of the joys of working with you is you would ask questions like that. No, look, I, one of the things, I would have a lot of sympathy for anyone trying to do what I did, partly because it would be much harder to hire the diversity of views that we were able to do. But the other is, what has captured Washington is a view that one should know the answer before one asks the question. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we didn't do that. We very consciously tried to avoid doing that, but I see very little at the FCC these days that reflects an honest attempt to actually study a problem and solve it. You know, you look at, for example, the Broadband Deployment Advisory Commission, which was composed almost entirely of people from business, or they had one or two representatives of cities, and they described their mandate as investigating the regulatory obstacles to deployment. Well, there are lots of obstacles to deployment. Other countries have solved that problem in a variety of different ways. It's not all at the city. You know, for example, one obstacle which they found or which was noted, but nonetheless did not stop them from saying that cities are the sole cause of all the harms, was a labor force problem. Okay, well, that's kind of interesting. But if you force cities to do everything on a 30-day basis, but you can't actually build out anything any faster because it takes a year to get the workforce, you know, like what problem are you actually solving? Because as far as I can tell, the only problem the FCC has solved is the, you know, unemployment by lawyers because you now have lots of lawsuits about the way they approach it. They didn't consider, for example, network sharing, which, you know, is, I'm not saying it's the right solution. But I'm just saying that McKinsey pointed out that a bunch of countries were doing that and saving 40% in terms of the cost of deployment, stuff like that. Well, we, um, we often we're not, are, we're not are able to, do to hire that, lots right? of lawyers through legislation. That's what yeah, most yeah, of the FCPA yeah, yeah. is. <laughs> but I certainly agree with you. I, it, one of the great things about the plan was it allowed us to start from scratch and, you know, kind of just ask these basic questions, gather a bunch of data, and then start formulating answers. I think every now and then, you know, you, you can't do that every year, but you should do it on a periodic basis where you're kind of trying to start as much as possible with a blank piece of paper and saying, what do we really know and what do we not know? I have started some speeches I've given about smart cities by saying, you know, the, what's the definition of a smart city? The definition is a city that actually learns, where you actually have, you know, embedded in the traffic signals and the sewer lines and the garbage the systems, the ability to learn. And that sounds like really simple, but let me contrast it with pretty much every speech every FCC commissioner in the last few years has given. It goes like this. Recently, I was in, insert name of state. While there, I visited with, insert name of occupations, always including teachers, firefighters, hospital workers, and the kind of 
you know, job that you would expect in that particular state. And I talked to a bunch of them. And what I learned was everything I've been saying for the last 15 years was 100% right. Well, you know, that's not learning. But that is the political culture of the moment. Let me mention one other thing that I think you would agree with me on this. We wasted no time in the 377 pages of the National Broadband Plan criticizing people who came before us. Correct. There was just no, why would we do that? And yet when you look at pretty much every speech by one of the Republican commissioners of the FCC today, it starts with everything was horrible before we got here and now everything is great. Well, okay, fine. Like, you know, it would make you feel better, but like, what is the purpose of doing that? You're certainly not building coalitions by doing that. And you're also not really analyzing the problem well. You know, I saw Ajit Pai's speech on C-band where he, you know, I actually agreed with a lot of what he did, but he starts it by saying, when we got there, there was nothing, you know, there was no spectrum that was available to be sold. Well, that's as a factual matter, not true. Absolutely not true. But it also undercuts the institutional credibility of the institution of the FCC, as if it only should exist with Ajit Pai as its chair. And I'm utterly opposed to that point of view about government. I think the FCC staff, there's such a value in having kind of a civil servant that actually understands these issues and has dealt with them in a variety of different contexts. And I don't want to waste any time criticizing the past. I mean, I'm not above politics, but I'm just saying that, again, is the kind of thing I would hate it if the purpose of a plan was simply to criticize what the previous administration did, because you'd never build the kind of necessary coalitions to actually accomplish great things. Right. So that's a, that's another thing I'm actually kind of proud of. Yeah, that's true. No, that's, that's absolutely true. If somebody came to you today and said, all right, here's a blank piece of paper. It's time. You said the plan was in beta and always would be. Yeah. It's time to redraft it. Would you do it? Well, that's a personal question. Yeah, and the, 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 the personal answer. <laughs> that's why I'm asking no. you personally. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, would you join me again, Scott? Can I ask you, can I turn the question back? Oh. Would you come over? No. <laughs> Look, I... My last couple of years, the most joyous thing has been being a grandfather. It's really, really awesome. I, I recommend it to everybody. I know that there are some people who, sadly, at least in my view, or, or for whatever reasons, don't get that experience and, and, and do lots of other things. I'm sure they find equally fulfilling at the age that I'm at. But my point is, I don't think I could do it that way again. I, if you, you know, I wouldn't mind being a senior advisor to such an effort. And I think the effort would be, let's talk about how the effort would be really different. You know, to me... One big obvious thing, and you and your team spend a lot of time thinking about these issues. When we did the National Broadband Plan in 2009 and 10, broadband and the data platforms were basically considered 100% good. And it's not surprising that most of what we wrote was about how do you create incentives for building networks, getting people to adopt, utilizing it better. Now, you know, you could say it's 70 30, you could say it's 30 70, you could say it's 50 50, but the point is, there's a lot of skepticism about the value of it and the value of some of the applications. So you would not only have a document that had incentives for some things, you would also have to talk about constraints. Where do you want to constrain behavior? There's a lot of horrible information about the coronavirus on the internet today. Whose job, and people are going to die because of that. I'm not being overdramatic here. You know, there just are people who believe it's only the flu and therefore, you know, they go to large gatherings and say, yeah, I've been tested. I have it, but it's not that serious. I don't feel that bad. You know, it's like those kinds of things happen. And 
how do we as a society address that? I don't have answers. I just know that there are a lot of questions about the obligation of either folks like Google and Facebook and Twitter and the obligation of government to make sure that the platform is actually a healthy platform and creates you know, information, allows debate, honors the First Amendment, but doesn't include a lot of false information that really is life-threatening and, and has other negative repercussions. But there's all kinds of other things. There's a lot of antitrust issues that we didn't have to address, and I think would certainly, or, or competition issues. There's a variety of different ways to look at it in terms of how the platform should be regulated. So you have all of those things. Another thing that's really different is the document is very domestic because at that point, pretty much all the big applications were were U.S. generated. We were you know, the center of the universe in terms of the broadband world. That's not true anymore. And you have to take into account the implications of the EU regulating. You have to take into account China in many different ways. So I think it would be a very different kind of project. I hope somebody takes it on. I'd be happy yeah. to volunteer to help. But You're I'm talking sure. about much more of a broadband ecosystem report. It's right. a, than competition and platforms. Yeah. And I mean, we, actually, the, the plan talked about some of these a little bit. There's a really, I, yeah. I think, a nice discussion of privacy in it where it laid out here are the pros and the cons. Here's what here's the good that comes with the data. Here are the concerns we have with, you know, with collecting it and using it. You can read yeah. it today and it still it still reads as current. It does. And, you know, privacy, there's a kind of a, in the weeds story. I had someone who I really wanted to bring on to write the privacy part of it. He was, in my opinion, the best person. The problem was he was a lobbyist for a public interest group and mm-hmm. filed documents at the FCC. And under the Obama rules, lobbyists were not allowed to be hired. This sounds so like quaint. And back in those days, since you now have ex-lobbyists actually running the departments. But it took me almost four months to get approval to hire him. And by then, it was too late for him to really write it. So we wrote what to me was a truncated section. I agree. I think it reads pretty well. But privacy would be another one of those issues. You do, you know, you do a much bigger piece on that. And privacy is a two-way street. Part of the reason we don't have the applications that I was hoping we'd have in education and healthcare is because of concerns about personal data, very legitimate concerns, and but how we how we work that out. You know, it's ideology doesn't kind of help you. You got to actually analyze it and do some of the hard work, and then you make judgment calls about where the trade-offs are. So I think we're about out of time. But, but Scott, I, okay. shouldn't I ask you when you read your own sections, what do you say? Hey, I got that part right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'm often credited with being the writer of the plan. I always crack up. As you know, I did not write the plan. People like you wrote the plan. How do you think about what you did? I was hoping to avoid that question. <laughs> I actually, I like what I did. And, you know, part of the plan was you talked about all the input people gave and we, there, were, there were papers behind it. And one particular paper I wrote with Colleen Malahan on competition, uh, broadband competition, is still gets cited pretty frequently, and I'm pleased with that. And I think it, the right parts of it ended up in the plan. And I'm pleased with it. It was a great experience. I like the data that we got to work with, the ability to ask questions and answer them. And you're right about the, I mean, if we were doing it today, we would think about competition in a different way. At the time, we looked at it narrowly isn't quite the right word, but it was just broadband competition. That was the big question. And it's still a question. I mean, it's still a big issue. Yeah. But we didn't consider competition in other areas, you know, in areas that rely on broadband. And that's, of course, a huge area because you could define the entire economy that way. But if we could narrow it down properly, 
I think that would be something worth considering. Yeah. So that was pretty much is, a non-answer. Is there anything else that you, uh, <laughs> well, is there anything that, that you now in retrospect wish you had written differently? Hmm. I mean, from my perspective, there are certain things, you know, there were these small tactical things, like I wish we had addressed the question of receiver standards. It's an obscure question in some ways, but it's interesting how receiver standards keep coming up in spectrum debates. We didn't really address that. I think that it's always hard to address because there are a bunch of receivers that were built at a time where people weren't as sensitive to the needs of spectrum and that that has slowed down the utilization of certain parts of spectrum. So the thing, yeah. the thing that I would so, like to, if the thing that I wish we had been able to include would have been more empirical work on wireline wireless substitutability. And of course, we know 10 years ago that was true. I mean, it was substitutable only for a, a small group of people. But if we had started to get some estimates of cross-elasticities, it would have been a nice baseline to see how, you know, to see how the market is changing over time. Yeah. And, you know, we had, I think potentially we had the resources available to do it. And, you know, often those kinds of resources don't exist elsewhere. Yeah. So that would have been nice. We, we, I thought we, we wrote a pretty good description of what that kind of competition could look like and with this you know, imperfect competition and how it matters, whether the firms can identify the subgroups of the market and, and so on. But it would have been a nice empirical project. And I don't know that we would have had the bandwidth, so to speak, to do it, but that would have been a nice addition. Well, I certainly think that's one of the most important issues for the next decade. I will tell you one of the interesting things in the debate about adoption is should you include people using mobile phones? Yeah. Because there's a lot of evidence that particularly low-income people are buying internet connections on their mobile phones and then don't have it in the house. And they're making a very conscious choice about that. They can't afford two different services, or at least in, in their, they're not prioritizing those two different services. But as we watch school kids having to do homework, which you can't really do on your mobile phone, as we watch now you know, school systems being shut down so the kids have to attend classes remotely, you really can't do that over your phone or you can't do it very effectively. As we see remote work being done, there's an interesting question of, you know, given the use case, whether they're really competitive. And I think, you know, you would know more than me as an economist, whether the fact that someone is choosing not to buy the in-home but using the mobile, does that mean mobile is actually competing with wired or are they still kind of two separate things? My intuition is they're separate. I know that there are various people who have argued to the FCC that, there should be one broadband market. If you do that, of course, you basically are saying, well, then why can't AT&T and Verizon merge? You know, which I think most people would regard as probably a mistake. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's a mistake. But now we have this really interesting question of will 5G compete with cable? I think the best view is it will compete in a very small number of homes. And I think what the FCC said about T-Mobile competing everywhere is just wrong. And I don't know anyone on Wall Street who believes it. I do think, though, in some areas, it makes sense. The problem is the cost of using spectrum to deliver big, big streams of data. It's so expensive. You're better off using it for mobile services, not for fixed services. And, but, you know, I could be wrong. And it's very interesting to see what Charlie Ergen is going to do. It's always interesting to see what he'll do. But, right. uh, but, yeah, but, but I agree. That, that now is a much better issue Anybody should be kind of trying to create the baseline and trying to create metrics for when can we basically say that mobile competes with fixed. Right. And there are, there are related issues. I mean, so, you know, everybody uses, people use their phone as a hotspot, in which case their phone is providing the internet service and then you're using it for something else. 
And if you could actually use that hotspot for unlimited video streaming to your television, then it probably would really be a, just about a, a full substitute. But I don't believe any plan allows that yet. But what you also see, though, in the data is people across the board, and in particular low-income households, having fewer laptops or desktops at home. Uh, this is just from the, right. um, the current population survey. So, you know, there's, there's a question of, I mean, you get the internet in the house one way or another, whether it's through a mobile phone and a hotspot or a hard line, that still doesn't by itself give them, give kids an ability to do their homework. And I mean, that's, that's something that you know, people talked about 10 years ago, probably even further. But, you know, I, I think in some ways, we're making a lot of progress on getting low-income people online, even though that digital divide is still much bigger than the rural divide. But as internet connections increase, the number of computers in the home seems to decrease. So does that mean that it's not actually helping the kids do their homework? I don't know. No, I, I don't know the answer to that, but that, that I think that's like one of the things it would be, this is what we're when we're saying, you know, the FCC ought to aspire to have that kind, the kind of credibility of a Bureau of Labor Statistics and in providing information about the platform, the network and the platform, and how it's being used and all that. That would be a very valuable thing to know because that is where the world is going. Well, on that note, uh, we should probably yeah. wrap up. <laughs> so... Well, Thanks great. so much for So we decided that you're going to, uh, you know, well, thank you so much for doing this. Let me just say again, it was so much fun to work with you and everyone else on the team. You know, we had a couple of events scheduled for the 10th anniversary that we will be canceling because of the coronavirus. But there is some small solace for us who kind of read all of these stories about, you know, schools saying the kids are all going to be doing their classes remotely and the others saying, you know, the workers are going to be doing everything remotely, knowing that if the broadband world had been what it was 10 years ago, that would simply not be possible. That is not to say that it was the broadband plan uniquely and solely responsible for the important changes, but it's nice to know that we played some role in making it possible that there could be some mitigation of what's going to be a very devastating situation for the country and the world. It's true. I hope so. All right. Thanks so much, Blair. Thank you. Talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye.